The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. There is a lesson in everything, and there is a lesson in everything, but if there was one thing that I could have changed, it would definitely be cutting off social media entirely, not having a contact with anybody, like just go off the grid completely. Hello and welcome to the Modern Adventurer podcast. I'm John Horsfall and on this weekly podcast, I talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years. From Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders and many more. But what is left for the modern adventurers in the 21st century? Well, let's find out. My next guest is an adventurer and photographer who spent the lockdown cycling all over Europe over 13 months and on the podcast today tells the most incredible story about her time and the act of going out and pursuing these adventures. So I'm delighted to introduce Ola to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure and great to have you on. And I think uh, what's so interesting about your story, which we're going to jump into, is this sort of big leap of faith that you did and a huge 13-month expedition that you did all around Europe. I always like to start at the beginning and sort of about yourself and how you sort of got into or or got into planning this big trip. Well, so I think every story begins um, way before the actual, as you call it, expedition. And I'm glad you're calling it an expedition because having no previous experience, it, um, it does validate my journey in, in my eyes to hear from another uh, adventurer. Um, so prior to the idea, you know, creating in my head, I, I was living in the States. I was living in the States and I was studying there. And not to get into too much detail about my situation, but I, I was kind of forced to stay in the States for the duration of six years which was great in the sense that I have gotten my degree there and I had the opportunity to live there. However, it also meant the sacrifice of staying in one place and not being able to see my family for you know, nearly six years. And so I found myself in this um, privileged place you know, of being able to, to be in the States, of, of being able to get a degree there. And then... I felt trapped. And you bear in mind that it's it's a sacrifice that I decided to take. It's a sacrifice that um, 
that was fully my responsibility, but also it doesn't change the fact that I was feeling like I am really not very independent, that I am really very reliant on other people. And at the time, I started to listen to some podcasts. And in the podcasts, I I listened to stories of ultra-athletes, you know, adventurers, people who are starting their own businesses, people who are just doing, uh, shifting the paradigm, you might, you might call it. And I thought to myself, wow, it would be amazing to do something similar one day, a version of it. Um, and I just felt this like thumping feeling in my chest whenever I was listening to the stories, feeling like, well, something's in me. And, you know, I, I, I contained it, but I knew that it was within me. And so after six years, I come back to Poland and I have this like grand meeting to get a visa so that I can go on and work in the States. And, you know, I get all the papers and everything's fine. So I'm thinking it's just, you know, formality. I come in and they say, we, we, we can't give you the visa. And I remember being so shocked because I thought to myself, well, here I was being a really good girl, climbing the ladder. And then here I am on the top of that ladder. I'm looking around and I'm realizing I'm, I'm on the wrong wall. And I remember I just felt quiet. I didn't have a plan B. I, I didn't have an alternative. And I was terrified, you know. And then there was this uh, shower scene. You know, every, every dramatic movie has a shower scene and uh, I definitely had mine, worth of a Hollywood drama. So I'm, you know, sitting in the shower and at this point I'm reevaluating every decision that I ever took in my life, you know? Like I was doing this thing and I thought I was doing the right thing. And all of a sudden I realized that it was all for nothing. And so this question clarifies in my head, what makes you happy? A very simple question. And, you know, before I have a chance to actually think about the answer and come up with a, with a good plan for myself, like an image of a bike comes to my head, you know? And I think it was so shocking to my own self to to see an image of a bike and then you know what follows is um a, me fantasizing about like going on a bike trip through europe a completely crazy idea that i have never ever thought of before and you know i got out of the shower and i started going around telling people this is what i'm gonna do and at the time i got laughed right in my face people thought i completely lost my shit and um, and no one believed that I was actually going to carry that through. So that's kind of the, the seed that was planted before I even started the trip because the, the shower scene was almost exactly two years before I actually started my trip, you know? It's very interesting. Uh, there was a lot of uh, similarities with me as well. This idea of when you have... It's sort of burning desire you you can almost like when you're thinking of it it excites you so much you sort of 
can't breathe, you're sort of wakey, can't sleep at night because you're so excited because it's in your head. You're sort of planning it, but um, and then the what makes you happy was something that I remember when I went across Europe, asking people wherever wherever I went, what's like what makes them happy, and the varied responses that you got. And it's a sort of you know what makes you happy. It's a question everyone you know should ask from time to time because. It matters so much. Absolutely. And so with, um, you know, planning this trip and as you say, everyone around you sort of laughing and wondering, okay, when's that going to blow off or grow out of it? How did the sort of planning of that sort of come about? Because as you say, having never done anything like this, how did it sort of go from the idea to the execution? I mean, to their credit, um, the last time I cycled a significant distance, and by significant distance, I mean probably no more than 50K, was um, about like 15, 15 years before I even came up with the idea, and then I was sore for a week. So I really had an, absolutely no point of reference for coming up um, with, with a plan to cycle through Europe. And... Uh, laughing didn't really discourage me, but the fact that I was broke did. And so I just realized that if I am to start this journey, I'll probably need a load of financial backup. And so I decided to go to London, you know, not a great place if you're trying to save money. Absolutely not. But that was my choice. And so I found one job, then I found another job. and um. And I kept thinking about this idea and, you know, I thought to myself, well, there are so many people who come up with those grand plans and, and they just talk about it for years and they never do it because there's always something that comes in the way. Like, I don't have money. I don't have time. I'll wait for the children to like finish high school, finish university, whatever it is. And, um, I thought, well, I'm different. So... I'm definitely going to do it, right? And here I am jumping from a job to another and then pandemic hits. And I kind of, I'm still thinking, you know, that I need to reach a certain financial level for me to be able to, to quit the job and to leave on the trip. But it's one of those things that you can just convince yourself, you know, till eternity that you, you just need a, a, another month, you know, you just need another week. Um, but you can do it forever. And so for me, I got a little help from the universe, as I call it. And I, I lost my job. I lost my job at the time I was in, in, in Poland. I was in, on vacation. And I remember just looking at the message in the grocery line and thinking to myself, wow, like all of my financial security just got out of the window. and I have nothing now, you know, what am I going to do? And I think before I even finished reading the, the email from work, I, I already knew that I was going to move out of London, get a bike, get everything else that I need for the trip because I had zero um, things prepared and I'm just going to start the, the, the trip, you know? So between me losing the job and 
um, me jumping on the bike, um, probably like two weeks passed. And again, I was starting from, from, from the zero, like during those two years that I've been marinating the idea of the trip in my, in my head, someone had sent me a, a guidebook uh, on, 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 on trips done on the bike. And I remember just like, you know, looking through a few pages, taking like very basic notes. And, and so at the time, at the time where I lost my job, I actually had a couple of pages of, of, of notes. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't completely unprepared. I kind of had a very vague idea of what needs to be done. Also, um, in London, where I was living, I have met a guy who cycled through South America. And I remember talking to him about the, the, the idea of the trip. And one thing, the one advice that he has given me was don't overthink it, which is definitely like my default to overthink things, overanalyze them. He said, don't overthink it because you're never going to do it. And so I really listened to that advice. You know, I, I found a bike within the first week. The second week, I ordered everything that I thought I would need for the bike. Uh, and, and then on the day of the departure, I packed all my panniers and then I had this terrifying moment of realizing how much it actually weighs. And so I had to put like a very good face, like in front of my mom to pretend that like, I got this, like nothing. Um, but on the inside, I was completely terrified. Um, and you know, the first moment that you leave. For me, it's always very difficult to say goodbye to your parents because I knew that was going to be a longer trip. And, you know, it gave me a flashback from the time where I left to the States, where I also said to my mom, I'm going to be gone for, for two, two years. And she just, you know, waved her hand at me and she said, I ain't going to be back before that. And I was gone for nearly six years. So now, you know, here I am standing in front of her and I'm telling her I'll be, I'll be back in six months. And, you know, she bursts in tears. I follow and we both kind of know, I think, that it's not going to be six months. Um, and then I and then I leave, you know, into the unknown. I think that's uh, such great advice from your friend is just don't overthink it, because uh, I think we've spoken at length on this podcast about this idea that if you go into every single detail of these sort of trips, everything that can go wrong, any sort of horrendous thing that could happen to you, you would never, ever do it. Whereas if you go in with a slight, I don't know, not naivety, but in a sense of just see what happens. I think it's a... a I want to be careful just in case I might say, it. but you just want to, you don't, as you say, you just don't want to overthink it. You, there's so much that can go wrong in everyday life on these adventures, but most, most of the time it's, it's usually works out all fine and you sort of just learn and grow as you go along. Absolutely. Uh, but you know, a disclaimer for, for me, in my case, it definitely was me being naive and me not preparing anything. I left the first day. I didn't have, I didn't have anything planned. I didn't think about the food. I didn't think about the, the place for, for sleeping. I was just going. I was just going. And I, I kind of figured that I was going to 
be able to do things even if I'm not prepared. I had this um, faith, I think, in what I was doing because, you know, when, when I set out, I didn't really know why, but I, I had this feeling, a very strong feeling that I needed to go and I just followed through. But the first days I kind of had, um, you know, a, a, a general direction in which I wanted to head but I I didn't have any maps prepared. I wasn't, you know, um, I wasn't organizing every bit of the trip uh, to the to the little details. I was just going and, you know, I assumed that I was going to encounter some issues because that's just the part of the deal. And when people were asking me of, about things that happened or things that could happen, they were warning me, trying to warn me. I would just say, you know what, if, if, if a problem comes up, then I'll deal with it. But I wasn't, I wasn't going to like, waste my energy on, on overthinking too much. So on that first day leaving your home, um, what happened at sort of 6 p.m. when you were maybe it's getting dark uh, and you're thinking about food? I, I always think the first day is probably the most interesting. I always find it is as well. Oh, on my I, trip. I would say that my, my, my first three days were very interesting. And so uh, 6 p.m. is probably a good point because, you know, golden hour, I still have about two hours of sun to go. And at this point, it's it's still fun. You know, I'm still like, oh, my God, I'm doing this massive trip. Like, this is the first day. Two hours later it becomes less fun because I'm a, on a really bad um, road. It's not like my bike is perfect for asphalt, but if you're using any dirt roads, it, it's, it was just terrible. And so I was on one of those dirt roads, you know, supposedly a shortcut somewhere. And here I am in the middle of nowhere and, you know, just fields and forests around me. And... And I need to start to think about the, the, the food. You know, I had something with me. I didn't leave without any, any preparation, but I didn't have much. So the first, the first night, I at least didn't have to worry about the, the food. And I remember um, I just asked some people about um, like hostels around the area or it's not a hostel. What would you call it? Um, it's like this little place run by um farmers that they might have a place to stay you know it's very popular in, in in europe and and i go up to this one place you know one place within the radius of like 10 or 15 kilometers and at this point i'm already over 100k which i have never done in my life and but i'm i'm still being driven by the excitement of the first day you know i'm super tired but i'm also psyched and so i asked about this um uh, this place and you know people direct me they're like oh you have to go there and there I arrive and I'm praying that they have some place to stay I, I come and I explain you know and like think about how ridiculous it, it is like here I am on the first day of the trip and I'm telling them I'm starting this grandiose European expedition you know but this is the first day so they probably just thought I was crazy um, they told me that they had no place for me because everything was just, you know, already, already taken. Um, 
And I just begged them to let me stay, pitch my tent in the, in the garden. Uh, and again, they were very, they were looking at me as if I seemed dangerous or I don't know. There's just something about the way they behaved around me that made me question whether or not I look like a criminal. Um, but they did let me go in and they were very helpful. They got me some like extra duvet for, uh, for the tent and I even got a shower. And so it, it was lovely. And I remember staying in the bathroom at night and looking at my skin and I got a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a glow from, from the summer day, um, from riding in the sun. And I remember looking at it and thinking, oh, great, you know, I'm going to get some tan. In the next two days, this became unbearable because I did not think that sunscreen would be an, a good idea. And, you know, by the time, by the third day, which is when I met my friend, you know, I had like three days to cover over 300 uh, kilometers to see my friend who was like leaving the next day. And so I was kind of on a tight schedule the, the first three days and I'll be spending more than 10 hours on, on the bike. And, and I arrive at his place, which happened to be like the highest point of, of, of the city. I am so dead that when I, I took a shower, I was actually sitting down because I just, I didn't have any more to do with this. Yeah, yeah, carry, carry, carry on, carry on. Uh -huh. So I was taking the shower, sitting down, and, um, and all I wanted to do was to lay down and, and not move. So those were the first the first three days of my of my trip. Like by the third day, it just it almost killed me, you know. And then I took an extra day off and all of a sudden I forgotten about the ordeal and I was ready to continue. Because I was only about 30 kilometers or 20 kilometers from the border. And you know the very idea of crossing my first border and actually making my trip a European bike trip, you know, not not by the name, but actually because I've already crossed the, the border and I visited two countries. I think that's so interesting. You talk about the three days because, as I say, having done something similar, after the third day is usually when the muscles fatigue starts to kick in, your legs feel like jelly, and... I, I don't know what your sort of, what was your sort of training for it? Did you do much? Well, when I got the bike, uh, like a week before the trip, I took it for a spin. I've, I've done like a 50 and I was like, this is a great bike. I'm sure it's going to be fantastic with no weight on it or anything else. And uh, that's it. So very little training. Um, and so, and what's so funny is that, yeah, I just remember for the first three days, the third day was absolute, or the fourth day was absolute torture. And then about the first week or two, your muscles are exhausted. They feel like jelly. But then after that, you start to get into a river, a rhythm of your day-to-day, -day, you know, getting up, cycling. I mean, your route started in Poland. Where was it sort of moving towards? So because it still started in at the end of the summertime, I figured I have a little bit more time to um, cycle through the north of Europe. So I went through the north of Poland, which is where I'm from, to the north of Germany. And then, um, you know, I went to Amsterdam and Belgium, France, and so kind of like the north of, of, of Europe. 
Oh, nice. And I just say through that, because for people listening, you were doing this probably during, uh, during the pandemic, let's say, <laughs> how were you sort of greeted in these, um, places? Because people were, I don't know, in England, sometimes you get people who are, were still quite fearful of strangers. Um, you know, I would lie if I said that the pandemic did not impact my trip. It was definitely very different um, at the beginning, as it was the end of the summertime. And if you if you remember, after the first wave, the restrictions gotten loosened up a little bit, and so I was kind of on the brink of heading into the second wave. So it was still a little bit more relaxed. Like I remember being in the Netherlands, pretty much there was. You couldn't tell that we were in the middle of a pandemic. And then there were other places that are a little bit more strict. But the more south I went and the, the more time passed. So, you know, September, October, I think in October, I started to see the difference. And there was this tension in the air. And people were definitely getting more concerned about what was going to happen. And, you know, in the news, everyone was preparing for uh, the, the second wave and once I've gotten to Spain which as we all know was pretty badly hit by the virus um, it was it was getting into me I was getting anxious myself you know I never did I consider quitting because of pandemic but you know when people tell you well you should avoid this or that city because they're not, they're not going to let you in or this region is closed. It's impossible. You know, I heard this word throughout the trip a lot of times. It's impossible. You can't like, don't go. Um, and at some point I was just, you know, my plan was to go through um, Madrid to Portugal either way, but I was really relieved to leave Spain at that time because of the situation. Um, and then and in Portugal, it was a little bit more relaxed when I entered. By by the time I left, it's gotten really tense, you know. And this is actually the only border where I was not let into the country. The border with Spain on the uh, Portuguese side. Uh, I remember just uh, seeing... Because for the most part, there was no one that would be checking me on the borders. I would just go into the country. There would be a little sign, the name of the, the place, you know, welcome, hello, and that'll be it. No people, no, as I call it, a welcoming committee. But there was one on, on the bridge from Portugal to Spain. And it's a natural border. It's a, there's a river, Guadiana River. And so... The policeman, when he asked me for my documents and he asked me, what am I doing? Where am I going? And, you know, here I am standing with my bike, my panniers filled up to the brim. And I say, well, I'm going home. And he looks at me in, in sheer surprise. And he's like, you know, in a, in a broken English, he's, he, he says to me, bike, no, no possible. And, you know, I try to like convince him and kind of tell him like what am I gonna do I'm on this bike trip like please let me in I'm just like on my own I can't like you know who cares but you know he's uh he's like I can't let you in like you have to go back it's not possible 
And so I, I, you know, I lock eyes with him and I say, everything is possible. And I cycle away. <laughs> so I cycle away and I'm pissed, you know, I'm like, God damn it. Like, they didn't let me in. What am I going to do? And my mom's words come to, to my mind. And my mom used to tell me that if they're not letting you in through the doors, try the window. And so I tried the window. And I got in. Well, you swam across the river? No, there was. <laughs> it's a funny story because um, it's such an empty area. Beautiful, almost like from a Tolkien story, you know, green hills and beautiful lakes. Well, lakes, parts of the of the river, really, because it kind of it's a very winding um, a river and quite hilly. And there's almost like no one around in the area. And so I had to cycle another 100 kilometers, 100 kilometers to find another bridge. Like for me, I was just thinking, there's no way that there's nothing between on this stretch of 100 kilometers. But it's an empty area. It's a beautiful area. And there just there wasn't anything in between. And so I actually, I spent the night on the Portuguese side and I decided to try Spain um, next day. And next day... I was on this main road and as I'm cycling to the side, I see this sign and it says España, like 20 kilometers or 15 kilometers. And there's another sign right next to it, border closed. And I'm thinking, and I'm looking at the map and there's only one road that takes you to, to Spain and everything else is like, you know, a kind of river terrain or hills or whatever. Like there isn't anything around there, right? So I'm thinking I'm either going to waste my time and like go 15 kilometers and like come back with nothing or I somehow am going to manage to cross the border. And so I take the risk, you know, I take the risk. I go and I remember just going down the hill and analyzing the situation. Okay, so it's a small village, probably like 15, 20 houses around. Um, I see the bridge in the, um, on the bottom of the hill or on the bottom of the valley. And um, the village is so small that I know there isn't any, uh, there isn't even any church. So there's certainly not a police station there, right? So like, this is what I'm thinking. Like, this is a criminal thinking right here. And um, on the side of, uh, in the corner of my eye, I see like an older man. And obviously he's giving me a look because, you know, I look ridiculous. Okay, let's face it. I have four panniers on me. I have my mattress and like stuff just packed in the back of them. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah, I <clears throat> I have stuff like packed in the back of the of the bike. And so there's no way that I could just go through a town and not be seen, right? And plus I covered my eyes with like massive glasses and like a um like a Sahara, wharf of Sahara desert uh hat. So he's definitely looking at me, right? But I'm thinking, okay, chances are that maybe I can cross. So I go down and I start, you know, the escape from, from Portugal, which you would think would be very prompt and fast and, you know, but it's not because I have like 30 kilograms of equipment with me. So I have to like, you know, detach all of the panniers from, from, from the bike and, throw them over the the barricade that's on on the on the border 
on the on the bridge and then I have to you know lift up my super heavy bike and put it across as well and then drop myself and then and, you know reattach everything so like it's five minutes of me just like you know dealing with this and then I tried to run as, as fast as I could which was probably about like seven kilometers per hour because it was uphill so it was very um was like geriatric type of a you know escape situation but i managed to get through and at that point i was still very like you know because i didn't want to do it i didn't want to you know do it that way i much rather just go in without any issues so it's not like i'm telling the story being proud of myself but also i do consider myself to be a european citizen i am a european citizen so i didn't feel like this law was quite fair and so i waited till i cycled like five, 10 kilometers away from that bridge to kind of feel like, okay, I'm in, no one's gonna kick me out. I can breathe out. So that's the story with the border. And that was the only one really that was that dramatic. There was another one with Spain and France that was kind of, kind of iffy, but what ended up happening is thankfully you have the mountains there and you know they don't really they it's not possible to control every border so if you want to get through you're going to get through unless it's unless it's water you know essentially yeah because that's what's sort of very interesting about europe is that before covid it was all borderless they're all france spain portugal holland germany they're all in schengen so free movement is so easy but to sort of close off borders i can't imagine as you say, they're erecting huge barricades or whatnot and putting in huge armed forces. So in a sense of who, for people who are listening who might just have, you know, one big border on one side and the other, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like that big a deal really once you are over and into the other side. It's not like they're going to go, oh, no, back to Portugal you go. And then you went from... Spain through into France and then again had more problems along the way? Well, not really, because then we entered into the summertime. You know, I did have to, ever so often I had to readjust my my plans. So when I started, I didn't plan for it. But once I was the in the in the south of Spain and I was this close to Africa, you know, I would lie if I said I wasn't tempted to cross over. However, at the time that I was there, it was um, middle of February, I want to say. Everything was closed, and so I did not get to Morocco. And I think there's still a little bit of a, you know, dissatisfaction about that because then my trip would turn into, you know, an international, more international, maybe more world trip. Who knows uh, what would happen if I if I did that? But yeah. Later, you know, the the closer to the summer I've gotten, the less restrictions there were. Um, and so once I've gotten over March and uh, April, I had no issues whatsoever. They were just like opening everything up and everything was, you know, pretty much back to what we might call normal. And so you're sort of circling along the south side of Europe during the winter, going through probably Spain, France, Italy. Did you go to Italy? Yes. 
Yes. Um, and then back and around. What was sort of, what would you say some of the few sort of moments that you had on that trip, which really stuck with you? Well, um, you know, I'm currently in the process of writing them down in the form of a, of a book. And I think maybe if not for the book and the part that I was writing yesterday, I would have probably told you a different story because I have hundreds of them. But yesterday I did remember this, this one lady, because if you think about it, you know, for the first part of my trip, I have been using couchsurfing. And so I've been staying with people in their houses and I've been experiencing places and cultures through the lens of, of their eyes, really, and their houses. Um, only in the second part of the trip, I decided to go off grid and, you know, be on my own, be uh, wild camping. But the first part allowed me to see, you know, people of different walks of life. I have met people who, you know, a, a man who told me a story about his daughter who died at the age of 16. I had a sober alcoholic who told me about the walks that he, he, he takes um, as, a, as a way of, of healing, you might say. I had a shaman, I had a naturist, I had, you know, 40 years old divorcees, just all kind of people. And this one lady, she was a refugee from, from Cuba. Uh, her daughter was hosting me and this lady, she didn't speak a word of, of English. And so I really had to work hard on my, on my Spanish. And as I walked into their house, she tells me, uh, her daughter tells me, my mom cried when she heard your story. And there was something so moving about, about the fact that she, she was so empathetic towards my trip, almost as if I didn't have to tell her, her about all the, the problems, the issues, the doubts, the fears that I had. And she understood it. Um, and at some point, I stayed there for two nights. And at some point, her daughter went away. And so it was only me and, and this lady. And she told me beautiful stories about her Cuba. You know, she told me about the country that she had to, she had to leave, leave behind. She told me about how when she first held her daughter in her arms, she thought about how, you know, how am I going to, how am I going to provide everything that this child needs in a country that doesn't have liberty? And, and she cried, you know, holding her baby in her arms because she knew that the future was just so shaky for this young, young woman. Um, and the other moment that she told me about was when she and her daughter got on the plane and they were leaving their country. And they, they were, you know, once one of the few ones that managed to, to escape the regime. And uh, she told me she was on the plane and the moment the, the, the plane took off, she she turns to her daughter and she whispered, um, we're escaping the, 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 the island that just was almost like a prison. You know, we escaped the prison. And, you know, she, here she is talking to me about all of those things and, and crying her eyes out and I'm, I'm crying along with her. And I think moments like this, and I had a few situations where it wasn't a conversation that was a sheer exchange of information. 
I'm doing my trip. This is my job. Like, you know, all, all the small talk that really doesn't carry any deeper meaning. In this case, it was a heart-to-heart conversation, a soul-to-soul exchange. And it was just so powerful. It, you know, I think moments like this make our life worthwhile, really. In moments like this, I felt alive. And the connection that I make with them was just one that will leave uh, an impact for me, um, you know, for years. Well, and that's sort of one of the amazing things I always feel about doing this is you do meet some incredible and varied people in a sense of just with such incredible stories. And, you know, sometimes people find it easier to talk to a complete stranger than their own friends and family. You know, they can sort of open up and really tell have heart to heart with someone because they sort of you know there's no sort of barriers to it in a sense i think there's definitely something to be said about those the barriers that some people have like i'm a very open person so it doesn't take a lot from me to open up and to be very vulnerable because i find strength in in that um but i know it is a little terrifying for a lot of people in this case with this lady, I want to say she's from the same tribe, you know? Every so often I run into people and I'm like, this, this, this is the person from the same tribe, you know? And there is just like a sort of almost like a you know, magical connection between those two people. It doesn't matter how long, how much time you have together. You just, you, you, you get right into it. You get right into the zone and you, and you speak from the heart and there is, there are no filters. There is no fear. There, there's just this connection, you know? Yeah, very, very true. And with that, I mean, we, we spoke, um, before the podcast started about sort of social media, how much were you, were you sort of, uh, uh, what's the word were you posting about it on social media or were you more or less keeping that separate or distant should I say so I tried to be as open about everything as I could for the first half of my trip I didn't really do a, a, there were pictures but that'll be it and then in the second half I decided that I'll, I should probably write a blog and that was a, a a wonderful decision and a terrible a terrible one at the same time, um, because I'm a perfectionist and also um, I'm a I'm a photographer and so even prior to the trip, a lot of my fellow photographers would be telling me, well, like this is such an amazing opportunity for you to get amazing pictures, and uh, as much as this of course is true. It also put a burden on my shoulders where I felt like I had to live up to certain expectations. So there was a couple of weeks where I would be shooting video and um, pictures on my drone. I'll be shooting pictures on my like heavy, bulky camera that I had with me. That was not a good idea to take it on the trip because it was just way too heavy. 
then I would be doing the same thing on my phone and then putting everything together, then I would edit everything together. Then you have to put everything, you know, like you have to put together the, the, the movies, you have to add the music, then you have to like tell the story. So like already as I'm explaining all the elements of the blog, which, you know, the first few ones look spectacular. You know, I have gifs and I have, I have everything, you know, but it took so much work. It took so much work. and. All the time I had to stop and I had to, you know, if there was a beautiful sight, I had to take all of my three devices and I had to record and take pictures on all of the three of them, right? So I had like different, different points of views and, you know, um, I had stuff for the blog, but I also had the stuff for Instagram. And so it, all of a sudden, this one year of a break six months of a break or however long it was going to be like it became a like a part-time job like to run the blog and also a blog that I was not financially you know benefiting from um and it all stopped when my drone decided to fly away I just disconnected from my phone and off it went and then same week the camera on my phone broke. So, you know, I started to get all those like little innuendos that, oh, maybe you're just looking through this beautiful world through the lens of your devices instead of doing it with your own damn eyes, you know? So that was the moment where I decided, well, hey, I have to like, I can still continue doing the blog, but it's just, it must change. I, I must, I must sacrifice this need that I have for perfectionism and I have to let, let go of something, you know, something has to go. Yeah, it's, it's very true. It's sometimes the curse of people wanting to know what's going on and people wanting to see your story firsthand almost becomes a burden to what you can experience you know while you're writing a blog you could very easily be having a cup of coffee and speaking to the locals about some story and i i your story is very very relatable you know going on one of my trips it was very much you know drain da -da, da, another camera camera gopro whatever and you know editing and you spend your whole life almost consumed by getting the content, getting the sh perfect shot. And it detracts from the actual experience of just being present in what is going on in whatever you're doing, wherever you are. To have that sort of time not to worry about, I don't know how many likes or not that anyone really worries about that now, but you know, whatever it may be, to really absorb yourself into the moment and cutting away from social media and cutting away from all that gives you that sort of time to really appreciate where, where you are. I would say that if there was one thing that I would change about my trip, and bear in mind, I'm one of those people who are like, there is a lesson in everything and there is a lesson in everything. But if there was one thing that I could have changed, it would definitely be cutting off social media entirely, not having a contact with anybody, like just go off the grid completely. Why, why, why do you say that? Because I think, 
I see social media mainly as a distraction. It's a beautiful tool of, you know, connecting, connecting people. But in my case, I know that I was using it as a distraction and I would be checking things all the time. I would get very jittery about it. And, and it was the trip that I've taken was taken for a very specific reason, you know, as it turned out later. I wanted to have time with myself. I wanted to understand something about myself. There's nothing I'm going to understand about myself through looking at silly pictures on the internet. No, no message, no matter how deep the caption is, because there's also like quality content online, of course, but nothing is going to tell me more than I already know. It just, I have to dig, you know, dig through layers of, 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 of things to get to the, to the most authentic version of myself. And in order to do that, I do have to disconnect from, from everything around me. And a lot of times that also includes other people. And I think that's one of the reasons why in the second half of my trip, I... You know, I said to myself, I have to be out in nature. Like, I have to experience that not taking a shower for a week. Like, otherwise, it's not going to be a true adventure. Like, I have to get out of my <clears throat> my comfort zone and do it in a major way. And so cutting off social media and most contact was the way that you sort of thought about doing that. No, it wasn't. But... <laughs> It should have been, it should have been, you know, some of the lessons you, you got to give yourself some, some break, you know, I, <clears throat> some of the lessons I've only learned after I've returned. And so I was aware that this area of my life is problematic, but at the time, because I've already, you know, I've already was putting out the, the message and then I was getting closer to home. So people were getting excited. So I did continue it. Um, but now a couple of weeks after I've returned, I'm, I'm definitely, my, my whole relationship to social media has, has changed and evolved and I look at it very differently. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, we've spoken beforehand about it in a sense of, you know, on one of my trips where you're showing these incredibly beautiful pictures it doesn't tell the real story of what's going on in your head or what's going on in your day-to-day and sometimes what you see and the reality I mean I I feel like a broken record when I I say this because everyone already knows it but it's quite nice when you sort of come to a point and looking at social media and know that you know they're just a picture they're just a video and they're very, very small snippets, very small, of someone's life. They're not someone's actual life. No one lives at 100 miles an hour all the time. Absolutely. There are the, the highlights for sure. But also, I kind of think it's a human nature to look at those pictures, to see those, you know, idealized version of, of, of ourselves or other people, our friends, family, and just... You know, we already have this tendency to look at the end product, right? She's done, she's done this trip. He climbed this mountain. You don't think about the, the, the journey at all. You think about the, the final product of it. And it's just magnified, you know, in, um, on social media. And 
I I think I'm coming to terms with with the fact I'm coming to realization that it might not be that uh, awareness of it is going to help us in any way. I think I'm coming to realization that only like cutting it out of your life entirely might be the solution. Otherwise, you know, subconsciously there might be some things that are happening that you might not even be aware of. But I don't know. That's my little theory right here. No, I think you're right. Well, it was quite funny. We had Ava Zubek on uh, last year. <laughs> and she, you know, of course, shows the best parts. The, she has videos and everything. And so she thought, you know, I should probably show the reality of what goes on. And so she started putting up pictures of the real reality. And, of course, got a lot of flack because I was like, I don't want to see this. I don't want to see, you know, bad things. Why, 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 why do I want to see this? And they... So it's weird it's like human nature to they don't want the real story they want the highlights real they want the best bits well because if you think about it if you have two people right and one is authentic and shows you know everything and the other person shows only the good thing you're not going to assume that the the pretty picture is you know, under the pretty picture are other things. You're just going to assume that there is a pretty picture and that's it. You know, you're not going to dig into the story. Um, so I think that's why it's kind of like this cotton candy is always popping at us and grabbing our attention. And it's just something that looks more appealing in a way. What, was, what do you think the sort of side effects that you got from sort of dopamine depletion let's say as i was trying to sort of describe it earlier the idea of just consuming so much that eventually you just have you just lose all what's the word you lose all sort of um inspiration you lose so much by just constantly scrolling that's one thing i've certainly noticed happening is when you go a lot on social media and see you sort of just get lazy which is a weird psychological thing you you wouldn't think that scrolling causes you to suddenly just drift or whatnot i think there's a lot to unpack here and um where do i start i'll start from the most uh, from the most important from my point of view so i believe that when we look at other people and we consume lives around other people we forget to listen to ourselves, right? So social media is a massive distraction tool. You know, we're already not encouraged to like sit down and be with our thoughts. We like constantly hit by different stimuli, you know, TV, radio, music, Spotify, Instagram, like just overloaded with information. And you know, I've noticed because I went off um, a social media for, for a month lately and I just have noticed a massive increase in um, my ability to focus and my productivity and just the way life feels, you know, like something shifted so majorly that I thought to myself, well, I'm not coming back. There's just no point. And only when you... You know, there's so much noise around, but only when you clear that noise away, you, you can hear what your needs are, right? I, I do a lot of talks with, with youth 
and I always try to kind of really hone in this message of, look, if you're going to go on social media, you're probably going to find a lot of beautiful dreams, a lot of beautiful adventures, a lot of beautiful challenges, but they're likely not to be yours. You know, I'm not coming to their schools to tell them, look, you have to do this bike trip. This is not the point at all. The point is to encourage them to find their own version of something that makes their heart, you know, pump a little faster um, and brings them joy and happiness. Um, and so I feel like the social media is really this disease of our society that doesn't allow anyone to tap into their inner knowledge. I'm really, I know it sounds a little, you know, um, hippie to say that you have to listen to your own voice, but, you know, I had moments in my life where that voice was just so clear and so strong. And I am the most, you know, spiritually rich that I have ever been. And uh, I try to avoid the, the, the word ha happy because it's really, I don't think, misunderstood and misused. Um, spiritual rich is going to be my version of, of, of happy. But I think it is primarily because I had this opportunity to, to really get to know myself, you know? And uh, yeah, social media is just not helping with any of that. I think that's so true with some of these adventures is it's, it's more about sort of learning about yourself and how you are as i say a lot of the time you see these when you go out you you leave as this person and then you come back as a completely different person more sort of clear-minded more sort of aware of certain things um and you know there's many ways you can do that but sometimes having that space with your thoughts and cycling every day for 10 hours, eight hours a day, you have a lot of time with your thoughts and it sort of gets you more, I'd say more clear-minded or whatever's hiding behind there certainly comes crawling to the surface quite quickly. Absolutely. And that's definitely my experience with the, with the bike trip. I think, you know, one of the changes that I see in my life is well, I think all the changes that happened were changes that were unexpected. There are certain things that you just know that are going to happen, such as, you know, you're probably going to build yourself confidence. You're probably going to be stronger physically and mentally. But I think a few things that I didn't expect to be a part of the equation was, for instance, me appreciating, learning to appreciate and value softness you know i think we live in a society that really pushes hard and always tries to get you know us do things that are bigger and stronger and go go for longer and you know more exciting things but for me the it was a like a reverse of a lesson because i needed to actually say sometimes you know what i don't need to argue with this person i don't need to prove my point I don't need to do anything for other people. All I need to care about is like this idea of like, I call it social egoism. I need to care, take care of my own self. And 
if I'm good, then I can spread, you know, the goodness out there to the world. But first and foremost, it will always have to be me. And it's not narcissistic or egoistic, really. It's uh, realistic. If you want to live a happy life, quote unquote happy, um, you have to take care of yourself. And that's so I started to cherish my soft spot, me being delicate with people. I something happened to to me creatively. You know, I, I'm I'm an artist. I I take pictures. I make movies, and I kind of felt very comfortable in that zone. That was something that I had a degree to prove my uh, you know abilities for, and kind of anything outside of that was just not not my domain. And once I started to overcome physical feats, like I proved to myself that I can go over this hill. I can prove to myself that I can go longer than, you know, I did before or faster than I did before. It had a reflection in the way that I started to feel about my abilities as an artist, as a human being. And so throughout the, the trip, I kind of wrestled with the idea of writing a book. And at first, it was this little tiny seed of, of a book for children. And then it's germinated into this idea of a novel. And now, you know, I almost have finished a, a book that's more of a, a I don't know, a, a bio and a, a bike trip, um, a reference point. I don't even know how to call it, but it's, you know, it's a story of my life, really, and the story um, of what happened in the past year. And... Yeah, this trip just creatively changed so much because I, I, I started to go out of my comfort zones. I started to think that I don't need to have a certification to validate my abilities. I don't need to tell, I don't need anyone to tell me that I have to do this thing and that or in a different way. Like I, I can actually make decisions for, for my own. Um, so those are the, the most amazing lessons from from the trip and my favorite part about this is that they all it's it's a tree that keeps giving and so I stopped the physical movement but mentally I'm I'm still going back and forth I'm still learning and relearning and realizing certain things that happen and as I write about them um, I get a better understanding as well so it's just it's definitely the best thing that I have ever done in my life yeah it's so true um you you find that sometimes the small things that trigger you in a sense suddenly become you're just like why why would i worry about that you're you're sort of grounding in your understanding your process your thought process is so much clearer that all the rest is just noise absolutely and i think and I think there's just nothing that can give you that than spending a little bit of time on your own. Like I'm really such a huge fan and, uh, you know, I, I just tell everyone, it's so wonderful to be okay on your own for even a couple of days. I just, it makes all the difference. Mm, very true. And so finishing the trip, you... You went round to Italy just for people. You went round to Italy, then Slovenia? 
Yes, Slovenia. I also in Italy. I went to I went to Sicily, so I did cycle around the island as well. And then uh, the initial plan was to go over to Greece, and then I wanted to go through Balkans back to Poland. But then things changed because I found a furry friend that um, just turned everything upside down. Uh, where did you find this furry friend? Furry friend was on the side of a very busy road in the south of Italy, quite close to uh, Sicily, to just give people a point of reference. Furry friend being a feline, a, a little cat. <laughs> yes, a little cat. Um, I was, I was just riding. It was the end of the day, and you know, in the in the corner of my eye, I see something black in the in the grass, and I remember just stopping the bike and. And just putting it on the side, and I literally said said it out loud to myself. Like I said, this is a part of the story where I find a cat and I take it back home with me to Poland, and that's exactly what happened. God, how how amazing! And say so what is that? How the sort of story changed was you had this cat, and then it was you cycling back home with the cat. So it was a little bit more complicated than that because. Um, Believe it or not, but I was not prepared for traveling with a furry fellow. And so I did have to adjust the bike a little bit. And the cat was, it's called a wounded. Um, the, there was something wrong with the tail. I couldn't tell at the time because it was just like all blood and scabs and it looked very nasty. And the cat was obviously like underfed and not in a great condition. And so I I took him to the vet and the vet told me that the cat needs to well the cat needs antibiotics. Um the cat needs antibiotics and the antibiotics need to be refrigerated. And so, you know, here I am in South of Italy. The the weather is like pretty much almost 40 degrees every every day and they tell me that the the the, um, uh, the drug has to be refrigerated. I'm like I just have to stop somewhere. And so I did. I I met a lot of friends in the South of Italy. South of Italy was probably one of the most favorite places on the, on the trip. So I went to this amazing eco farm where I stayed for two weeks with, with, with a cat. And the cat, you know, I fattened it up a little bit and I kept giving uh, it the, the, the medicine. And so it's gotten a little bit better. And I got myself prepared better for traveling with a cat. And yeah, once I've gotten on the bike with a cat... Um, I knew that it wasn't a perfect place for a cat to be on. The cat agreed. It did not like being on the bike. Uh, first three days were terrible to the point that I, I was just kind of questioning everything myself. I'm a, it's a funny thing, but I'm, I'm, I'm a vegan. And so I was just feeling so guilty and like so so guilty of like abusing animals i'm like what am i doing i'm taking this little creature and you know what am i doing but at some point the cat got used to being on the bike i had a little net over the basket that i've gotten for him or her it's a non-binary cat it has a it's a it's a female biologically i guess but it has a male name it's kind of how it goes with me and so um and so the cat got used to being on the bike for the most part, it would be covered, you know, under layers and layers of a uh, very comfortable sweater. My, I gave him my favorite sweater. This is the sign of love here. And so the cat was in the in the basket, and I I was just like, I'm going home. I had at this point, I had probably 
um, a little over 3,000 kilometers to go, and I did not sight do any sightseeing along the way. I was just very focused on returning home, and the weather was going at that point as well. You know, it was the end of summer, which was still beautiful in the south of Italy, but I knew them well that the summer will end very fast in, in Poland, and so I was trying to get home really fast. So within very short span of time i you know i did kind of swooshed through a lot of countries so sort of once the sort of trip sort of took a massive uh change of direction of just trying to get home as quickly as possible yes and uh as i said because the cat didn't have the papers you know the cat needed more papers than i did and he left vaccination um a, a, a trip and the passport or something and it, it would just take too much time and I didn't want to waste time. And so, you know, I was already, <laughs> I was already half criminal. So I'm like, I might as well try to smuggle the cat through the borders, you know, because on the ferry, they would most certainly check and they would most certainly hear because the little fellow is not one of the quiet, Quietest. quiet <laughs> ones. It has uh, a very Southern temperament and it lets people know that he's here. So... Uh, so I did kind of, you know, I flipped my trip. I had to adjust, which wasn't the first time that I, I needed to adjust my trip. And I just went with the flow, you know. Well, it just seems like absolutely incredible. This sort of trip taking you all over the place. I mean, a whirlwind of emotions and experiences you've had. It's just been absolutely amazing to sort of listen to. So it's just very heartwarming to hear that kind of reaction from, from, from people who are doing it, you know, because I'm still like waiting for someone to come up to me and say, well, you know, she's a, oh gosh, what's the word? I'm forgetting it. But like, you're fake, like you're not doing it, you know? Um, yeah, I'm still waiting for someone to be like pointed out for me, like your trip wasn't real because I just, I, I don't have it in my resume, you know, I've never done anything like that before. And not that I care that much what people are going to say, but I do care what you think because you're legit, you know? So like people who actually, know, because you have so many people who think that they know more, you know? Um, I just saw this picture online the other day of like two people pointing fingers at this uh, other human just sitting down on the, on the street and you have kind of like the scan of their brains, right? And the one sitting that's being laughed at, his brain is like nice and big, right? And the two that are making fun of him, uh, they have little brains, right? And it's kind of, it happens so often that someone who has no credibility, no knowledge to criticize you is going to be the first in line to tell you that you're doing something wrong. And so, you know, if I have someone who actually has the experience and ability to criticize me and to, to tell me like, oh, this was cool or this wasn't cool, then, you know, I'm going to take your compliment in and I'm going to bathe in it a little bit. I think people, though, they, <clears throat> they, it's human psychology is like you'll hear a thousand times people go, wow, what you did is incredible. But if you have one person, no matter what background they have, if they've said, oh, you're fake, you will listen to that and it's, it's annoying but that is sort of human psychology and what you've got to do is slightly drown out those people because you know as i say it's amazing what people do on sort of online when they know there's very little repercussions of it happening i remember on one of my trips 
at the end, I decided to be very open and honest about my feelings towards it. And some guy decided to write, good, I'm glad you suffered. You deserved it. And I was like, ah, what a dick. But... (laughs) um, Oh, that is terrible. It happens. And out of like the entire trip where people have been really nice and complimentary, that's the one that sort of... I remember, and that's terrible, but <laughs> you know, that's that unfortunately is human psychology. And once you sort of learn, I mean, it's easier said than done, you know, to, to sort of forget about that sort and just move on. It's yeah. People, people just like, like to do it. <laughs> Imposter and, is the word that I was been looking for. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's a, hola, there's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest each week, uh, with the first being, what's the one gadget that you bought on, that you always take with you on your trips and adventures? Well, you know, I suppose the bike wouldn't, wouldn't count as one. Uh, if it does, then there would definitely be the bike. But except for the bike, for me, it's always the, the journal. Um, it's just, you know, so many times I go through the notes that I have taken, entries that I've written, and I just get so into the story that I'm telling because I like to tell stories with a lot of details. And so when I write them down and when I go back to them, there's just no way in hell that I will be able to remember all those details. So for me, it's just, and also I think something happens, like maybe there's a connection from the head to the, to the hand um from the heart to the hand that doesn't involve the head that sometimes i just don't think about what i'm writing and the most beautiful things come out of it and it's just yeah i'm not doing it for anybody else it's just like my notes so it's very personal it's something that um that i value tremendously nice uh what about your favorite adventure or travel book so I have one that I've been obsessed about for years now. Uh, it's Cheryl Strait, uh, Wild. There was a movie made out of it. It's about um, this lady who um, goes on a PCT, Pacific Crest Trail in the States. And uh, she does it after her mom had died. And it's a very personal story. It's a story that's packed with the, with the past. It's frankly, the best inspiration that I can get from my book, because unlike any other travel book, well, maybe not any, but certainly out of the ones that I have, um, that I have read, is the one that just stands out among everything else, because it's not just, oh, I did this and I went there and it's just, you know, just telling things as it is. She goes into depth to explore the emotions that were driving her at the time. She connects it with the past and she kind of thinks about the future. So it's just intertwined in such a beautiful way that for me, it's like a full dimensional story of a human being. That's um, a human being who's being very vulnerable and very honest also about the mistakes. And a person who takes themselves with a, with a little bit of a, you know, they're not too serious. 
they can make fun of themselves. And I really appreciate that. And I have the self-depreciating uh, type of humor as well. And I, I kind of... I kind of like to make fun of myself. I don't like the life to be too serious. And I really um, very much admire that in her work. Very true. Um, why are these adventures important? For, I really hope for most of the people, they're not doing it to show off. They're not doing it to to just post a nice picture, like I was here, you know, and not feel the place, not truly be in the place. I really hope the trip is almost like this embodiment of a symbolic life journey that we take on. And so I see it as a tool of self-understanding. And I think they're very special because you go in with the mindset of a beginner. Right, which is so hard to get in our regular day-to-day -day life. And so I really think that we are so lucky to have this opportunity and have that option for us because it never really it never goes it never grows old, it never goes away. And for our, all the people who are like thinking about doing something um major, something that might change their life. The beautiful thing about it is you don't have to go on a 13-month-long bike expedition. You can just take some time off work. And I, I think a week is like a decent amount of time. You can, it's, it's, you, it's possible for you to get that time off of work. Um, if you are to fully support yourself financially during that week, uh, even if it means uh, eating only oats and bananas and peanut butter, uh, as I did, uh, it's financially, you know, doable if you want to, you should camp. I, I would recommend people to go and camp for that week. And you can even like borrow the camping gear from uh, anybody that you know. You can borrow it from REI or Decathlon and then return it a week later. You didn't hear that advice from me, by the way. And And just, you know, spending time with your own self in the middle of wilderness can be just so transformational. And I think that's the, that's the beauty, that's the juice of, of taking the trips, of taking the time off, of taking the time for yourself, you know, and really disconnecting. I think that's the beauty of it. Yeah, very true. Well, what is your favorite quote? I actually, I've, I've written three. I've written three because I, I don't know, they're just different people, very different people, but talking about a very similar thing. And I thought it was quite interesting. The first one is from the, the book Wild. And let me read it so I, I won't butcher it for, um, for the listeners. Um, it goes, I walked until walking became unbearable until I believed I couldn't walk even one more step. And then I run. And I love this quote because it really speaks to this idea. I don't know if you're familiar with David Goggins, but I'm a, I'm a big fan and I, I love his 40% rule in which he claims that, you know, when you reach your full, when you think you reach your full capacity, you're only at 40% of what you can really do. And I think Cheryl really talks about the same thing, but in a, in a you know, more poetic way. Um, there's just so many layers of your capabilities of your potential that we still haven't even tapped into and it's almost like the beautiful thing about it is that it's 
unlimited. There is there's no way that you're gonna get to the end of it and you're gonna be done. Like as you evolve as a human being, there's always gonna be more that is kind of hiding somewhere in the bottom of your heart, soul, whatever you want to call it. But um, yeah, you always you always have more to give. You know that's why I love this quote. The second one is from the one and only Carl Carl Jung. Uh, people would do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid facing their own souls. Love this quote because I love the guy who kind of marries psychology with spirituality. Um, so when I quote him, I feel a little bit more um, validated, I guess. But, you know, the guy is really all about exploring your shadow. So not only talking about the good, beautiful sides, but how, what... What goes on in the deepest depth of your psyche, the darkest sides of it, like, let's explore that. Let's see what's in there. It's scary, but once you, once you dig deep enough to get to those parts, your life is going to be transformed because it's like, it's like in a matrix, you know, you're finally going to wake up and you're going to be able to maybe sometimes face a very uncomfortable truth, but it's it's the truth nevertheless so obviously you know which bill are you going to take for me there's no question i'm i'm going to go for the reality check for the slap from the universe and um yeah i want to know it all and that's why i love this quote and the third one just to close off with something strong david goggins um you are in danger of living life so comfortable and soft that you will die without ever realizing your true potential and it just, this quote gives me chills. You know, it's just so powerful. And it speaks to the idea of embracing the discomfort, you know, embracing the discomfort and really um, encourages you not to miss out on your suffering. In the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from a household that's been problematic. Um, my dad has been an alcoholic he's sober now he's been sober for about 10 years and so i carry this heaviness this kind of a, a burden that um that i put on my on my back oh that has been put on my back when i was a child and the way i think about it those difficult things it's almost like carrying a backpack with a filled with heavy stones, right? And you carry it throughout all of your life and you're like running this distance and it's so hard because you're carrying this backpack, right? And it's just like, you think it's unfair because you have this load, this burden to carry. But think about the moment you take this off. Like, not only you don't have anything on your shoulders anymore, but think about the strength, the, the, the mental strength, the spiritual strength, that you've gained through the suffering that you now have and you know you're you're at advantage now you know so it kind of it flips the suffering and just to kind of make it clear no trauma is okay you know period but i think you can choose to see the negative things in a positive light and it can really transform your your life. And if you start to think that way about your life, and if you start to think about the un, un, unlimited potential that you, you might have, 
then you're just gonna start to enjoy that suffering, that discomfort. Like there's just so much information about your own self and that suffering. There's just so much worth and value in it. So I, I really, again, try to always hone in this idea of embrace discomfort. You know, it's it's your best friend. Embrace failure. Um, those are all the, the things that are there for us to let us know about something that we might need to work on or might need to let go of. Yeah, very true. I think sometimes with these trips, you discover so much about yourself and the sort of possibilities of how far your potential, your mind, your body can actually go. Um, Sometimes it can be quite scary to actually realize how far, but you you suddenly once you break out of that sort of comfort zone, you do sort of experience so much more. Uh, what about um, people listening are always keen to get started and maybe go on like one of these grand adventures? What's the one thing you would recommend to them to get started? As I said, uh, taking a long ass trail getting a tent and just being out there for a week just be out there like a week is such a wonderful kind of testing ground because even if you're not going to eat like you're not going to die in a week you know even if it's going to be like quite extreme like nothing major well is likely to happen you know it might happen but like it's pretty safe to go on a week without without anyone and I, I guarantee you, you're going to learn so much about your own self and that you're going to learn more about your own self in that week that you would have learned in the, in the past, you know, five. Like, there's just something about quieting that outside noise um, that changes everything. And it's also a good way of testing how you're going to feel if you're not going to take a shower for a week. I don't know if everybody wants to go that extreme, but um, I think there is a beauty in simplicity. And I think there is a beauty of, you know, having everything you need with you and not having, not living in a house that, you know, you only use 10% off because it's just too damn big. Not having all of the devices, expensive devices that you worry about losing and not having to impress anyone and look a certain way because you're just in the middle of nowhere. There's just so much value in that that I think it's it's a shame that more people are not using that opportunity. Very true. And um, finally, what are you doing now and how can people follow you in the future? So I would love people to either find me on my, on my website. Uh, again, I'm trying to not use my social media as much but it doesn't mean that i'm completely unreachable so um i'm there every so often it's just uh on my on my terms you know um so i'm there and i post every so often and currently i'm facing i think the biggest challenge um so far in my life so writing my life story talking about the difficult things that happened in childhood um talking about you know being away from home for six years and what does that feel and what does that do to you um and i connect everything or i try to connect everything with with the with kind of the skeleton of a of a trip because this is kind of how it felt to me going on a trip i've gotten a lot of 
flashbacks from the past um, connected with what I want to happen in the future. And I, I put it in a hopefully slightly funny story that's not that serious. But I, I really, my goal is to like create this work that will really encourage other people to be vulnerable. Because as I said before, I just, I see so much strength in sharing your own story. And even though it might be so uncomfortable for a lot of people, it's just so powerful and just, there's no question about it. There's no denying it. Um, so, yeah. Well, Ola, it's been such a pleasure listening to your stories and I cannot thank you enough for coming on today. It's been such a pleasure. And, uh, you have the gift of listening, which I should probably learn from, <laughs> from you. <laughs> you know, all my friends from America that I'm saying hello to right now are going to be very excited that they will finally have an interview that, I, that they can understand because every coverage of my, of my trip has been in, you know, indes indecipherable uh, Polish. And finally now uh, they can understand. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. What a pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can watch the podcast on YouTube now and don't forget to sign up for our monthly newsletter, which is in the description below. I hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day and happy adventures.